My name is Fred North. I'm a stunt film helicopter pilot. I've been flying for about 35 years. The best helicopter in the world for filming is this guy here. It's an Airbus H125. It's the Formula One of the helicopter. Between me and the camera, there's no helicopter anymore. And that machine allowed me to do this. That's it. Acclaimed stunt film pilot Fred North began his journey to becoming a pilot at eight years old, the very second he saw and set foot in a helicopter. Now, from the jungles of Costa Rica and Madagascar to the Swiss Alps, Fred has flown in some of the world's most perilous and demanding conditions, serving as camera helicopter pilot and chief pilot for the world-renowned rally car races such as Paris-Dakar and Paris-Moscow-Beijing, and the coordinator for the famous sport trek, Raid Goldwaz. Now specializing in the film industry for more than 30 years, Fred is an expert in aerial cinematography. Having accumulated more than 15,000 hours shooting feature films and commercials and more than 20,000 total flying hours. He has over 200 film credits, including Inception, James Bond Spectra, Mission Impossible, Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy, and several movies in the Fast and Furious franchise, and has worked with such acclaimed directors as Michael Bay, Tony Scott, Peter Berg, even Joel Schumacher, and so many more. But then in 2002, Fred achieved the world record for altitude with a helicopter, climbing to 42,500 feet in South Africa. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome the author of Flying Sideways, world record holder, and the top stunt helicopter pilot of Hollywood, Fred North, to the show. Welcome, Fred. Thank you so much. I mean, I would love to hear that every morning when I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can send you a copy and you can play it before you enter any room. Right. I'm going to do that next to my bed. Play. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well... How old? You know, tell tell us a bit about that story. Uh, being eight years old and seeing that military military helicopter. I mean, was that the beginning of the dream? I mean, yes, because um, you know, born and raised in Africa, you don't really get a lot of opportunities. I will say. And as a kid, I think it's difficult to know what you want to do if you're not exposed to things. And. You know, back then there was no internet, there was no cell phone, there was no smartphone, there was no... I didn't have a TV. So you only know what what is around you. So when I was in the street and then that helicopter landed in, my, in the stadium next to the house, it was like an alien ship landing from space. And that helicopter is like a Mad Max helicopter. It's called an Alouette 2. It's like the old... It's been designed in the 60s. It's like a, it's like a bee. It's like a glass with some metal. 
it's amazing. I mean, you know, it's not just like, it's not a VIP, it's a Mad Max badass helicopter. So from eight years old, you know, you have to envision, you know, me like in a small t-shirt, you know, we don't have a lot of clothes. We just, you know, we're in Africa and, and they're running like crazy to the stadium because we can see that helicopter is landing in the stadium. And it's not a stadium like you can envision with grass. It's it's sandy. So when he landed, the the the, the cloud of dust and the sand, you know, it's it just adding to the uh, to the emotion that you can you can even for an adult, but as a kid, it was crazy. And then when he landed and shut down the engine, so you can envision it as three hundred kids waiting, you know, and there's the army there. And then the my my uh, social study. Uh, teacher just stepped out of the helicopter there were no doors and he had cameras and they were going to um, snap some pictures of a river that just burst into the ocean and because he saw me and I was one of his students he said you know back then you have to understand back then in the 70s he's like do you want to come with me you know I mean today the parents will have to sign a waiver they'll have to, to you know I mean the whole show back then and then I said sure eight years old you know so they put me in the back seat, but you have three seats in the back, no doors, no seat belts. For what? Back then. You put an eight-year-old kid in the back, no seat belts. Didn't bother anyone. So they put me in the middle in the back. And you have to understand those seats are army seats. So you know those tubes with like just a piece of fabric and it's pretty rough. So my little hands are holding the, the tubes on each side of the seat, but and then we took off. I mean, it was insane. And then each time the helicopter was making a turn, I thought it was going to fall. You know, you, you don't know the, uh, the the forces and stuff. So it was crazy, you know, as a as an eight years old perspective. So anyway, long story short and fast forward, um, you know, it, it, it well, always been there. You well, know. you know, Fred, when I, I, I read your whole book and... One of the most inspiring elements, and ladies and gentlemen, you have to read Flying Sideways. You know, if if you don't know what to do with your life, this is the type of book that if you read it closely, you're going to pick some things up that are going to inspire you. And Fred, one of the things that I, I noticed throughout your, your story, from the moment you're eight years old, you step foot in that helicopter, you were, you were fearless. And you really continue to show that fearlessness throughout your career. If it was flying a new helicopter, it was get you know working to get your license, um, and then you know even when it came to film, taking that step of faith and knocking on someone's door unannounced to get your yeah. foot in the door. This was the theme throughout the book, and I fell in love with it. Thank you. I mean, most of those, you know, it's, it's one of the, we, for two reasons, we, you know, we did that book uh, with my wife, you know, we did it together. And uh, I mean, she wrote it because, you know, as a pilot, you know, writing is not necessarily my uh, best skill. Uh, but it's it's hard to get, even if you have a goal, you don't even know how to attend, achieve it. And Writing the book, it was it was interesting to see because I I never analyzed what I was doing to get there. I was just doing it, and and the thing by, by reading the book and everything that happened in my life, I, I noticed that exposing yourself to things. So don't be afraid to, like you said, you know, knock at the door, ask questions. People, as I think, they have a tendency to stay into the little box, and they don't get out of the box. 
and then they like a no you know remember the in the story when when i did the uh the uh, french air force uh week selection to try to be a jet fighter pilot and then after that week thinking i was the best ever he told me you know you will be the worst pilot ever and uh, you know at 18 and 19 is a tough one to hear so again uh it, it was interesting for me to when somebody says no to you for something you want he doesn't really say no to you he says no for him to you like it's 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 per his experience he says no but it's not for you you know what i mean but you're taking it as a no personally but it's him saying that it's nothing to do with you that means you can't really fit into his life it doesn't mean you can achieve in yours but it took me a while to understand that piece you know well and that is probably some of the greatest wisdom i think i've heard in the last few years that if you're told no don't take it personal like you said it's them saying no for their purpose not you and like you said so many people take a no personally and it literally derails their own dream but i love the fact that you never let the word no stop you because what i noticed within the book and i love this because anytime that because you have such a very high adrenaline level you would get bored or maybe a particular yeah. type of job was not as it appeared uh which are some of the funny stories in the book but you always moved forward you picked up the phone you know you were asking do you, you know does so and so need uh, a helicopter pilot and you would it didn't you literally would move across the globe just to get a job and i thought that was 1, great yeah yeah 1000% nobody's going to give you anything you have to take it and i mean also i mean realistically if you if i see myself today when somebody's contacted me i think the guy did half the half the trip you know because most of the people don't even go there they just wait or telling me i don't think i'm capable to do that or and i think all the young folks out there and that's they are their worst enemies themselves you know uh, and and in fact when i when i when i thought about what that guy told me in the uh, in the air force what he meant to say what he meant to say was not no for me to be a pilot even if he said it was you will never be a good soldier you won't never be a good pilot in the army in the air force and he was not i think disputing my pilot skill because i didn't have any but the way he said it no but that's why oh you lost me oh there we go yeah you got muted there for a second but go ahead we can correct it in post okay <laughs> okay good um no i mean what I wanted to uh, to highlight to what you just said that you know um, I never stopped trying to to find my way, but I, I'm not like a, a bulldozer, bulldozer like a machine because each time I get like when I when I got that no, I'm a sensitive person. So then you know for a few weeks, a month, I, I was not depressed, but I was you know negative energy. But each time I go down, I go back up. You know some people are so strong that I never go down. But personally, I went down numerous times in my life. But each time, I go back up, and that's what I want to say. Because you know, it's not, it's, it's. I'm not the kind of person that can just bully through life. I want to, but I have to go through the emotions of well, it. I want to cover. I wanted to ask you a question because 
And I love this because you were very aware of your skill and talent as a helicopter pilot. When you were covering the Paris-Dakar rally, you learned that you needed to be better. What did you need to be better at doing at that time? So there's two aspects on this question. So first of all, when you become helicopter pilot, you have a the helicopter has been designed to have a purpose. So you need to understand the principle of the machine. You know, it's not just a machine to serve your purpose. You have a duty. So helicopters save lives. Helicopters uh, work fire fires to you know save people homes and people lives. Okay, um, we take uh, equipment from one place to another. There's plenty, and we do film, film work for the audience to discover the world and discover. So I wanted to do something better with my life than just having a job. Okay, so that was the first thing. And that that was a realization like, I can't just do things for me and I need to use that machine for what it's been designed for. And because I was covering the um, the Paris-Dakar rally, all those sport events that was for the TV, um, when you shoot a sport event like a Formula One racing or sailing, Yes, so it's not exactly skill. It's the way I was doing things. So first of all, when I was flying for the Paris-Dakar, that's when I realized I was really connecting with the machine. Like I was one with the helicopter. I really uh, understood that piece, which I never did before. Okay, so that was one thing. But the problem was when you fly for TV events, like uh, Formula One racing and selling boat, all that stuff, the producers, they're more interested who's winning, who's losing, and what's happening on the ground, that the way you're going to shoot it. Of course, if there is a beautiful sunset and it's a beautiful light, they'll take it. But it's more important what's happening on the ground. When you do film work, it's it's the reverse. It's the way you're flying that's going to explain an emotion. It's the way the, the, the everything you're going to be doing to capture that shot. It's not about what's happening on the ground. It's the way you're going to translate that story. And I, that's when I understood that I want to be a film pilot because I want to be part of the creative. I was not bored with the helicopter part, but I wanted more. So that's that's a, a little bit that when that happened. Now, was it from Paris Dakar? Is that when you ended up um, flying a helicopter? Was it uh, the Swiss Alps? Because you knew that, you know, it was more the mountain terrain that uh, you wanted to learn more of, I guess, maybe improve the overall skill in oh, that sense. Sure. And of course, the air is lighter up there. Yes, of course, high mountains. Um, so I, I flew almost everywhere on this planet. I mean, as you know, there's a few <laughs> countries that I didn't go, you know, but like Pakistan, Afghanistan, yeah, I'd love to go, but it's when it's going to be peace. We may not be in my lifetime, but um, if one day there is an opportunity, I'll go because I'm sure it's beautiful. But anyway, yes, what happened is if when you fly the helicopter, if you connect with the machine and then it's it's a little bit easier to fly against uh, elements like high mountains, uh, desert, because if you want, it's like if you walk, you know, it's you're not thinking about the surrounding that much. You're just going through. So it took, it took me, you know, 10,000 hours to get to that point. And, and that's the thing. Um, I'm trying to really um, enforce that to the young pilots. It, it's valid for any machine, by the way. It's it, any like ski, surfing, a, any 
outside uh, device that you're going to have to learn and connect with. Helicopter is a bit more complex, but it's the same principle. How can you learn by being one with it? We, we often uh, go to only trying to control whatever we're doing. You know, okay, how does it work? You know, a bicycle, okay, to go left, I have to do this, to go right, I have to do that, but you're not trying to connect with it. So for helicopter, it took me a while because like removing my shoes and, and have my, my barefoot directly to the, uh, to the pedals to fill the machine because the pedals in the helicopter are the only controls. It's the one controlling all the, the, the back propeller. So basically the pedals, um, the control, the rods goes from the nose to the back. So it, it, when you're your feet on it, you, you, you understand the vibration, the, the way it's reacting, basically translating to that. So it just took me a while to, um, to understand that. And that was the transition from the Paris Dakar to the film. Well, you, br well, you bring up a, a vital point because when I was reading your book, you would notice when thing, things seem to be wrong in the, in the mechanical parts of the helicopter where the passengers didn't know and you never said anything to them, you know, don't make them, you know, get into a panic. Was it because of the fact that you were flying the pedals uh, with no shoes on that you could feel that if there was something mechanically off that you knew how to react to that? Yeah, the machine talked to you like there's going to be something off. It's the same with a car. You know, some people need gloves with a steer wheel. I understand if you're a Formula One race driver, but in a normal, sometimes you see people with gloves. It's like to me, if you put something in between you and the machine, it's not going to help you. So helicopter, the same. If you put big boots and big clothes and then you put gloves and then, you know, it, it, all that stuff, it's, it's, it's in between you and the machine. For people that only do standard flying and not exposing themselves to the machine, it's okay. But if you want to push it a little bit and do more challenging flying, like even firefighting, not just what I'm doing, you know, the stunt Hollywood stuff, it can be pretty, you know, intense but if you even if you do firefighting if you do uh, uh rescue in the um like the coast guard or you know it can be pretty challenging you know so you need to connect uh, one of the funny things in the book um that you always talked about was that you always had this very high adrenaline level has you know has your adrenaline ever gotten the best of you well you know that's a good thing and a bad thing. So luckily, when you go through life, um, sure, you're not getting any younger, but you do get wisdom. And my wisdom is kind of controlling the adrenaline a little bit. I still have it, which means I will, I will push the envelope, but I will do it in a way that is so much safer than I did in the past. You know, And I think more time goes by, we get more and more wisdom, which is really a privilege to age gracefully is the wisdom if i because sometimes i'm asking myself you know if i could not see my face okay and i didn't know my age what age i would be you know what age would you be right so for me you know i'm 62 but if if i didn't know i think i would be i would think 45 i could be physically 35 but no wisdom like with the wisdom i have today i think 45 is more accurate um, but it's interesting, you know, so the, that wisdom, I think is controlling the adrenaline today, but it's still there. You know, there were, there were 
there's so many great stories in this book and some of the stories that you tell could be perfect movie action scenes. And a couple of the stories that really kind of shocked me and how you lived through them is when you were in Africa and it was, I believe it was the second time that you, you clipped the wire that was yeah. between the trees yeah. and the helicopter flips upside down. But how in the world did you manage to keep that thing flying? I was shocked. You know, the thing in life, sometimes you don't know you, it's a reaction. You know, you don't, you can't think because it's so fast. I was just lucky that the wire basically cracked, you know, if he would have stayed in one piece, I won't be here to talk to you because I was upside down. So it won't have been pretty. But the problem was more after when I landed where that, you know, those people, they, they, they pulled me out of the helicopter. They pulled my shoulder and pulled me down, but it's like three feet up, you know, on the seat and they pulled me down. And then he put his, his boots on my face on the ground. And then he put the gun on my head. That was more, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a very calm person. So when he was doing that and he was spitting on me, like he was pissed off, but he didn't understand what he was saying. When I understood that because I, you know, when I touched the wire, I broke his TV and he was pissed off because of his TV. I figured we, we can work something out. But before that point, life, you know, throws stuff at you. You have to deal with it in a very calm way and will assess and it'll be all right. You know. Yeah, you you have some incredible stories of not just flying in your book, but your your um j just the confrontations with certain people uh, throughout your life and and the way that you handled it. Uh, and one there, I came across with within one of your chapters this one sentence that I absolutely loved, and you stated. I'm not a quitter. I'm a fighter. How did that help you throughout your career? You know, you have to to, not to fight is a strong word, right? But when, when I say that, you know, it's just to to not let go, because we all we all have stuff coming our way. Doesn't matter what it is. You know, everybody has a different uh, threshold, and. When, you know, when I'm, I'm um, going through my world altitude record and when I went to the descent, first on the way up, there were a lot of stuff that happened and I had to fight. But that record in particular really expressed what you're saying. You're not a quitter, I'm a fighter, I'm going to fight it. But because I had so many opportunities, first of all, before the world record, there was two years of prep. So during those two years of prep, I could have stopped at any point. There's not that many people are going to say, you're right, do it. I mean, literally, I think... Maybe one in 100 will say, you know, you're right to do it. My wife was supportive, of course, and my friends, but I'm talking about the ISAT world. People that don't love me just know me like that. Why the, why the heck you want to do that? So during those two years of period, it's a test, like for your commitment to a decision you make. So that's the first thing. If you make a decision, you stick to the decision. No, no change of plan. No, you stick to it because it's, life will try to make you change your mind. And then you're never going to do anything. So that was the first thing. So then on the day, you know, on the day and in the book, that's why I went into details about the world record. Even my wife that was physically present when I did it in South Africa, when she did the interview and I explained to her 
everything that went to my mind, she was shocked because she did. We didn't. We never talked about you know details of what went through. But what happened is on the way up had technical. And if you look at the read the book, you're going to see it's very easy to. I'm not technical on it. It's very easy to understand, as you know. But I had to fight brutal thing. Like I, I knew that if I was not on the way up, though, when I was fighting, if I would have failed, nothing would have happened to me. I would just descend and it will be just a huge disappointment. But on the way down, I was fighting for my life. And those four minutes, so it's an hour, 25 minutes to go up, four minutes to get down. Those four minutes was brutal. Mentally, I knew each time something was coming my way. So I had an engine failure. I had to restart the helicopter. The wind was so strong. I was going backward. I was going to go over the ocean. I was going to dump into the ocean. I mean, the, the RPM, I mean, everything went sideways, you know. Um, and I knew for each of those seconds that was so hard that if I was, my only me could make a difference between life and death. It's scary as hell. The problem is you can feel that pressure is intense. That's when you need to be a fighter. And I fought, I fought the whole four minutes, but the, then, you know, I had a breakdown, right? A few seconds before I landed, my body started to shake from head to toe and I had a, a gigantic break, breakdown. Um, I cried for 45 minutes. I was a wreck. And that, that's when I hit my threshold. Like I fought to that point and that was a breaking point. So it was really interesting for me that world record because it has nothing to do with the attitude. It's the event. Because people asking me, why did you do it? It was not for the altitude. It was really to prove myself that I'm capable to go to the goal, you know, that. that well, yeah, know, because I, for you, it's also a learning process from the preparation. It's yeah. a, and, and, you know, you talk about the mental process, the physical process. And like you said, you know, it's not just the altitude. It's the process before. And then, and because like you said, it's a two, two years of preparation and you could have chosen to quit at any time, but you didn't, you stayed focused on it in the middle of doing all the other helicopter flying that you but were sure. doing for everyone else. So, yeah, no, you're right. A yeah, so all of this yeah. is mixed together. And, you know, when I read the story of the world record, I was like, you know, People just don't understand what it takes. And like you said, you know, thank goodness it was over, but my goodness, the trip down, that was a harrowing uh, situation right. because you are, and see, here's what I loved about your preparation. You already knew what altitude you were going to have to hit before that helicopter, just in case, you yeah. had to restart the engine. You already knew before you even went up. So, right. And, and what, and that's what I loved about where there, when, as you were growing as a helicopter pilot, you started looking at areas that were being missed, things that weren't being paid attention to. And then you started becoming the pilot that would map out every type of scenario and and even the story where you talk about the one the mechanic and you said something's not right something's not y'all go back I know you're tired but I need you to check every element of all of these helicopters because something's not right 
and he comes back to you and goes, I will never doubt you again because he found that 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 cracked um right. you know I'm element. Yeah. 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 And I was like, sometimes you just gotta listen to your gut and you gotta tell other yeah. people, just trust me, go do it, because you just gotta know. And uh and but I guess with I, yeah, go ahead. I think this is why it's very important that if you want to become an expert in one field and you want to be talented at it, your personality need to match that skill. Because for for me to know, like I have a gut feeling that something was wrong, it's because I, I, I my personality goes with with it. You know what I mean? If, if you're not, if if some people telling me I want to be a a firefighting pilot, but I can see those guys are more instrument driven. They're more like an airline pilot. He can still try to do a firefighting pilot, but he will just be a B guy. He'll be just one of those. Sometimes you don't know the, some somebody that he will never excel because he, his personality doesn't match his skill. I think that's the difference between somebody that really excellent at what he does and just a B a B guy. His personality doesn't match. Well, yeah, he can learn. Yeah, because Fred, I think one of the best uh, examples that you prove this point in the book is when, and and I've seen videos where a helicopter has to rescue someone, has no place to land, but the medical team either needs to get off the copter or they need to get back on with the person injured. And with no place to land, sometimes you have to take those skids and you got to rest that skid on a rock where the rest of the copter is still hovering. And you've yeah. done stuff like that. Yeah, on a on moving train for extraction too. <laughs> yeah, we're going right. to get to that moving train here in a moment. <laughs> right. And yeah. But you know, and I love the way in your book where we can as a reader, we can see how your thought process your wisdom and your skill grew. And one of the elements there kind of shocked me because in 1990, covering the Paris Dakar rally, you said that there were people who didn't respect you. They thought you were crazy, arrogant, yeah. reckless. Were they yeah. just jealous because you didn't sit around taking the cushy jobs like flying tourists around? I think it's it's half and half. I think I, I was a little bit arrogant. I think it, it took me a little while to understand. You know, when you get really good at what you do and then, but you don't have enough wisdom for it. So it's like, it, you know, the problem as a pilot, so you need to have an ego to, to have confidence in yourself. But, but it's a fine balance to have a good ego or a bad ego. And I think for a little point, I was, I don't know if I was arrogant, but you know what I mean? Maybe I was a smart ass. I don't know. I think there was a little bit of that. Um, it was also, I think, maybe a defense mechanism because uh, because I was not a standard pilot. People were jealous. Um, and in France, you know, look, look, I love French, French people and they do amazing stuff. But there's one thing they do really bad is they're very judgmental. And yes, as we say, you know, as a joke, if you want to kill a French, you have to aim above his head, you know, uh, to kill the ego. But look. I think I had a little bit of that when I was young, but I know I was also kind of all that stuff. So I think it's half and half. And then when he went through the years, I've learned to really have a good ego, which means I know what I'm doing, but I have to respect the person. 
uh, more. I have to listen more. I have to be more kind and more gratitude, you know, for what's happening to my life. That really I learned the past 20 years. The first 20, no. So I think that's why there was uh, people maybe didn't like me. You know, I, I had to fight a lot of, uh, you know, people not cool, not nice. You know, maybe I deserved it a little bit. You know? Not well, you know, one of the things, because I love the fact that you were never a quitter, you were always a fighter, you even if you got bored or you ended up working for people who basically lied to you or they were just jerks in the process. Mm -hmm. But that one area when you had you you wanted to be the pilot that became in that very, very close Hollywood circle. And like you said, there was no door open. So instead no. of you know, like, okay, there's no place for me at this time. You go back to Paris and another with another gentleman and you start your own helicopter cinematography business there. I think it was called, what, ARC France or something? Yes, 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 yeah. Aria Camera System. So yeah. you create your own circle in Europe and... I thought that was a brilliant move because for a lot of people today who have a dream, don't sit around waiting for the door to open. There are some no. cases where you go open your own door and you did. Yeah, I was trying to, because the phone pilot position didn't exist in France or in Europe, it was just in America, to create that job is like, because Back then in France, when people wanted a helicopter pilot for filming, they would just hire a helicopter, I mean, at least a helicopter, and then the helicopter was, the pilot was coming with it. I, you know, and I understood there was a, there was a, a knowledge and expertise as a film pilot, but because the people didn't know. So what I did, yes, I, I bought some equipment, some camera system, like to stabilize the image for the helicopter. I, I bought that stuff and I, I did a website and I was renting that equipment with a pilot, but the pilot was free. I, I still put the day rate, but I said, you know, you don't have to pay it. It's free because I was thinking if I don't put the day rate and they, then, then they're going to want me, they're not going to want to pay. So I put the number, but they, were, they didn't have to pay only the equipment. So for three, four years, they were always asking for equipment. And after three, four years, then it transferred. They were asking for me as a film pilot and they didn't care about the equipment. That's when the transfer happened. And that's what I was hoping for, but I, I, I was not sure. I didn't know. But even today, I think it's still a good, you need to find a way to convey the, the clients to wanted you. But it doesn't necessarily go through you. You have to find an outside, something outside that will help you get there. For me, it was equipment went to me. And even today, when somebody's calling me for a job, they don't really care about the equipment. They want me. And then I'll say, okay, for that shot, I need this equipment. I need this equipment. You know what I mean? But it's it's the complete reverse. But yeah, well, I, had to, I had to fight it. Yeah, because it, because now in film, you know, when you're, when you, for you, you've reached this, this incredible high level where people trust you, you have over 200 feature films to your name. They have no worries whatsoever. And no one's going to ask a question about the equipment. Because the equipment is the equipment. 
you know, you know, if they ever ask a question, it may be, you know, what lens are you using? But other than that, they know that they're going to get the shot. And Correct. one of the greatest stories in your book and is when you met Steve Wynn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that story. And, uh, and that, that really opened up a door for you, didn't it? No, yeah, 1,000%. Because first of all, for me, Steve Wynn was like, if I'm telling you, do you know John Smith? No clue who the guy is. I understood when I went to the office and I saw those huge two dogs and his gigantic table and like the office with Vegas, you know, and all those people. I understood the power a little bit, you know, as a French perspective that doesn't know anything about Steve Wynn, what he's representing in America, um, you know. But I mean, the guy was... It was amazing, the guy. I mean, he's Steve Wynn, you know what I mean? But he's, he was crazy. For sure, he opened door because that's when I realized that I can really bring something creatively. Like, if I'm not afraid to speak up, which was the case there, and because of, of my French accent and the bad English, whatever, he went through way easy, easier than I think if it would have been American saying, you know, to him, would you have the balls to stand on top of your building? He may have taken it the wrong way, but because with my accent and everything, you, you know, it just uh, worked out. You know, I, I, I thought, was, you know, when you I, told I, when you told Steve Wynn, well, you know, if you have the balls to do it, I was like, whoa, you just lowered the hammer right there on Steve Wynn, and you know, and of course, you already knew right then and there, Steve Wynn was, you know, in a way. He was going to say yes because he was going to prove to you and everybody else that he had the balls to stand on the edge on the ledge of that hotel and that six hundred up, you know, really on the edge. But the only thing, the reason I said that is because I can tell is is he was such a powerful person and his ego was gigantic, and I was thinking the only way is to put that guy on top because he wants to be on top. It's just the way I, I, I express myself because I didn't know how to say that. But I, I was sure he was going to say yes, but I was afraid a little bit at the same time that maybe I pushed my words too far. But when I said it, he, he didn't answer right away. He paused for maybe 10 seconds. And he was not thinking about what I just said. He wanted to fire all the agencies that were there. That's why he, was, he waited and I say, shit, you know. He's going to tell me to go, go off. And he told everybody in the room to leave. You, 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 get the fuck out. And he's like, shoot, what just happened? You know, but, and at the end, you know, we did, uh, we did that, that. Did you look at the QR codes at the end? There's the Steve Wynn. Uh... No, I did not. I'm going to go back and look at it because I want to go back through the book again because the book is so good that there are parts in the book that I want to see in the, in, in all truth, Fred, there should be a movie made about you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> but the cure codes, it's very entertaining because when you read it, start at chapter nine, but you have the cure codes in the back of the book at the end, you take your phone, you put it on the camera and you put the cure code and then you can see the video like a Steve Wynn. So when I'm explaining about the video, you can see the, 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 the commercial and you can see the behind the scene. So it just, Add um, a little See, bit of. Uh, I, I remember the commercial, and and what was so brilliant, as you said in the book, the camera is focused on Steve Wynn. You have no clue he's standing on the ledge until you, the pilot, 
pulls away and then just yeah. showcases that hotel. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody has ever shot a more brilliant Las Vegas hotel commercial than that one. No, I agree. And then the way, I remember the way I told him, I said, you're going to be standing on that ledge at 600 feet. We're going to see your face only. You're going to introduce your hotel. And then I'm not just going to pull away. I'm going to pull down and you're going to go into the sky with your hotel like a god, you know, in Vegas. That's, I, that's the way I said it. And then he said, this is exactly what we're going to be doing. You know, it's funny. And we, it, when you watch the video on, on the QR code, it's, it's good to see it because you can see our reflection. In fact, when he saw the reflection of the helicopter in the building, he said, we're not taking that away because I don't want the people to think we CG that, that is fake, that it was green screen. You wanted and to I be thought, sure people. You know, and I thought it was so funny because the clashing of egos, like you said yeah. with, with Steve Wynn, and that you placed it in the book that even Donald Trump thought he had faked the whole thing. Right. <laughs> and I <laughs> thought that was so funny because I'm like, okay, you got Steve Wynn and Donald Trump. They both have huge egos. They believe in their business sense and all of their projects and all of their buildings. But to have that line in that in your book, I just thought it was awesome. Yeah, it was funny. When they were talking on the phone, uh, yeah, you can have my 747 to go to... Uh, on the weekend in South America, and then he said, "I'm going to do that." Oh, yeah, you did that. He was so like out of this world. It was like, and back then, which for me, Trump, I even didn't know. You know, it was almost it was 18 years ago. It was like I knew the Trump Tower, that stuff, but you know, I mean, he was not who he is today. Yeah, well, I've got to ask you because the moment you became a film pilot, not a pilot filming, was it the same feeling you had when you knew you wanted to fly a helicopter when you were eight years old? It was, it's the same, you know, each time I fly um, to do a, a sequence, you know, um, not from A to B, but it's always a pleasure, of course. But when I do, it was, it's an intense moment that hasn't changed since eight years old. It was an intense moment back then. And each job I do, I'm trying to bring that intensity somehow. Even when somebody's telling me it's a simple shot, I hate when they say that to me because I don't want to make it simple. Because it'll be boring. You know, how can we make a boring shot very interesting? How can we, you know, make sure the audience is going to have an emotion? It's really important for me that, that that gets conveyed, you know. I don't think there is such thing as a simple shot when there's a helicopter involved. <laughs> I mean, from my perspective, it, it could be simple. But, you know, I mean, like, let's say you have New York, you have the Brooklyn Bridge, and there's a car driving on the Brooklyn Bridge come from Brooklyn to New York. Simple, but how are you not repeating a boring shot that has been done 50 times? You know, so it's more stuff like that. What can I do to make that spicy, to make that sexy, to make like epic? What can I do for the audience say, whoa, that was super cool, you know, instead of just, we have one of those, you know, you don't even pay attention, you know. Yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, now when Larry Blanford called you a natural born filmmaker. What did that mean to you? When he told me, I didn't know what it means. Um, I said, th thank you. That sounds so good, especially in English as a French perspective. But I didn't understand what he meant. I understood way later. And what he means by that is I understand the shot. Because the problem is a film pilot, there is a word pilot. So 
a lot of film pilots or people from the outside think we are only there to to control the helicopter with a camera system but in fact you are you become the camera system the helicopter is gone disappeared and i think what larry was trying to say is like i'm connecting with the camera so much i'm be, i'm like a dolly great but i'm the one pushing the dolly you know like the helicopter is doesn't exist so i'm moving that camera like if it was you know in the space and then i see the shot and then i get the shot i think that's what he, he, he meant by then back in the days but it took me a little while to understand that you know i love i loved it when you you went back and you studied so many films that in that included helicopters that were filming certain scenes and you studied those scenes and you really started getting the grasp of your own movements of the helicopter and to what type of shot it was going to create. Then when I saw that you had done some of the filming for Fast and Furious. Yeah. It reminded me of, and I don't know the gentleman's name. You probably know off the top of your head that he drives the black uh, Porsche Cayenne that has the huge camera jib and the globe camera right on the front that it's like a gyro and it moves around when they're doing the chase scenes on the ground. And I thought, you know, it's kind of like you and then him. It's this, it's this cinematography dancing that's going on to create the epic footage that all of us, the audience is going to get to enjoy in the theater. No, you're right. One thousand percent, especially fast and furious, you know, because of the, the, the car chase and the craziness that happened with the car, we they can't do it at 100 miles an hour. So they they do it way slower. So we need to create the energy. We have to create that speed with the camera and not with the cars. Otherwise, you know, they'll hit themselves. So Alan Padloford is the one, you know, is a, what we call a precision driver that, you know, driving that that huge big SUV with the, the crane and everything. It's, it's exactly my world. The only benefit they have, it's a 2D and me, it's a 3D. Because I'm adding the the height, but it's it's something they have to dance around the car, they have to move the crane. You know, we um, it, in fact each time I'm flying with the with the cars on Fast and Furious, they're there. We're always on the set together, and it's always a joke. Like I'm going to be in his frame, and he's going to be in my frame. So we always have to work with each other to not have like his, because it's not a problem if if you shoot a car, if he's next to it, they can paint that out. But if he's above it, they can't because there'll be a hole in there. So it's the same for me if I'm above the car on site. So we always try to work with each other to help each other. We have a huge respect for each other. And he's been doing the Fast and Furious for me since number three. And we're, we're going to do number 11. And for him, I think it's the same. So we uh, we family in the Fast and Furious franchise. You well, know, I've got to ask you because I know that within this, well, there's 10 films. Um, and I know that the helicopter elements kind of came in probably for the second half for you were you, did you play both sides within the films to where you were filming some of the scene sequences, but then were you also flying one of the helicopters as being one of the villains? Yes. So I usually, even today I do the same. If it's, if, if it's a complicated sequence, I, I, I'm going to do the stunt part. So I'm going to be filmed. And at the same time, because we do it several times, but if it's, if it's challenging as far as safety, if it's challenging as far as what we need to do, 
because it's usually my idea the way because I'm the one I'm a, what we call an aerial coordinator, which means I, I put the scene together, and then I'm the one to choose the crew. So who's going to be the, the 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 guy flying the picture helicopter? Who's going to be the camera helicopter? So usually I can I can do both. So I don't want to. The reason I'm saying that I don't want to put somebody in my seat in a dangerous situation. So I will do it, and then he will do the camera ship. And then when that's done, I'll go back to the camera ship because camera ship is what I prefer the most. I love the creative part. I also love doing the stunt, but I only want to do advanced challenging stunt. You know, I'm saying that before and after. When I do it, I was like, shit, again, you know, what? why on earth do, do I put myself there? I'm not kidding. Each time is like, I'm, a, I'm so stupid. Like each time to put myself there, what do I need to do that at like 62? Is like, what? what's wrong with me? But after and before, I'm always super happy, you know. Oh, my goodness. Well, let me ask you this because we there is now drone technology. Has the yeah. drone technology stolen away some of the things that you do in film? So, in fact, there's a, a huge misunderstanding between what drones can do and what the camera helicopter can do. And without going too much into technical, the overlap is maybe 10%, to give you an idea, okay? And the main reason for that, there's three, four reasons for that. Um, a drone doesn't have a human on board, okay? It's detached. That's First of all, that's the only platform in the movie business where you don't have a cameraman behind the camera. If you have a crane, the guy's right there. If you have a dolly, he's right there. He has a camera on his shoulder. He's behind his tripod. Um, anything is there. So he's living what the camera sees, he sees. Okay, with his own eyes. The drone, no. The drone is 400 feet away and the guy is, is on the ground. So he doesn't, he can only see through the screen of what the camera sees. So if, if I'm looking towards you, but there's a rainbow on the left and there's trees there, he's not going to see the, drone, the rainbow. He's going to keep shooting the, whatever is there. So what we call, they have a lack of spatial orientation. They don't know also where are what per where they are because it's impossible. They also, um, they have a very complex uh, to manage depth of field. So if you take a drone person on an empty field that is five acres, you put one tree in the middle and you're asking the drone guy to shoot and go around the tree at full speed, go around the tree and come back. He has to bust the tree and come back. How is going to know? He's not going to hit the damn tree. How does he know it passed the tree? And he doesn't know the shift of the wind either. That he can manage, but you're right. I mean, he, he may know the wind's coming from like to the right, so he know. But the problem is to make the shot interesting, you have to manage the speed to come to that tree. You have to slow down. And then when you, when I see the tree, I'm slowing down. And then I, me in the helicopter, and then I just bust the tree. I'm like, four feet from it, but in a dance, in a way that is going to, you know, I, I can change the speed and the way I'm going, doing this shot because I am in connection with that tree. The drone guy, it's not easy because he can only sit on the screen. So it's a little dot. First of all, at the, at the beginning, it's only a dot. And at the end, it's big. But it, it, they, it, it, for him to not hit the tree, he has to pass it and then turn, which makes the, the shot not sexy because... It's too late. You know, I mean, it's not that easy for a drone pilot to... Uh, the, the thing to me is like, if they try to reproduce what a camera helicopter can do, they will fail. 
they have to do what a drone has been designed for. And I love drones for plenty, um, plenty shots. There's one thing I don't like is when you see a drone shot and you it's taking the story out. You can see it's a drone shot because it's that effect. The, the horizon is banking left and right and there's doing movement going up that it's not realistic. Like there's no way anyone can do that. You know, I mean, I'm very careful with a helicopter to do something that is seamless. Like I don't want the audience to get detached from the storyline. And I think drones, sometimes they've been used too much as a drone effect. It does take the storyline away from the audience. I mean, well, that's yeah, because, what I believe. Yeah, because what I liked that the way that you explained in your book, Flying Sideways, when you're filming, you have to know the space around you. But at the same time, you know when, if you're going to, if you if you need to bank hard left and then drop for the shot, or you need to go right but go up, you know what the shot in your mind is already going to look like, and you're paying attention to the horizon, you're paying attention to the light, the sun, the location of the sun. So you yeah. know all these things. You can't, do, like you said, you can't do that with a drone. So no. you lose the story with the drone, but the helicopter is creating the story, but bringing the audience with inside that movement to where we're the ones, if the shot is dramatic, we're gasping and we're going, oh my gosh, we're, you know, and that's, that's the, the beauty of the magic of filmmaking that you bring to all of us. Right. Because what happened is again, remember the helicopter doesn't exist. Okay. I'm flying the camera, but I am with that camera. I control the camera I control that speed. I can slow down because I can feel it's right. A drone, the problem is there's no such a thing. There's the drone between the pilot and the camera. It's so big there that he can't. It's not his fault. So that's why he has to be he has to be used the right way. You know, then it's okay. You know, and in fact, um, ninety nine percent of the time when I'm on a movie set, the drone is way higher than us. They are telling the the story by being high, and we create the story with our speed and being in the elements. It's often like that. You know, they can't fly as low than us. They can, but then it becomes a drone effect. Well, I even you know. went to your Instagram page and there is this shot. And I love the way that you explained it, where you're in a helicopter, you're flying the helicopter, but you're filming and you're following, let's say you're following uh, a Cessna and, and it's a low wing Cessna. You know where you have to be placed because you also have to deal with air turbulence. You don't want to be disrupting that plane's movement and you've got to keep your rotors above his tail section. I was so impressed with not only how you explained it, but just that technical aspect of just following a plane that let's say you're going to film him landing. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, there's, when most of the people filming a plane landing, it's just a boring thing landing. I was thinking, how can I create that emotion, like that wow factor? I'm going to tell the guy and he's going to be big in frame, you know, and there's different ways to do that. You can start from very far and come to him. You can be to him and I pull away when he's landing and then have a beautiful sunset at the end. But right, the helicopter, I place it with what I feel. 
Like the turbulence of the fuselage is not that bad for a plane of this size. The propeller is an issue, so I keep my blade just above it, and then it's not a problem, and the camera is right there. Drones will be a, a, a danger to have a drone right there. Also, the pilot would not know his distance from the plane. He would not know. There is no way. So that's why, you know, there is a space for drones in the camera, um, in the film business, and a huge place. It's it's fantastic tool. But the, 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 the big, big, big difference, I will say, is drones, they need to do a shot that has been decided ahead of time. Okay? Me, you don't tell me the way I'm going to do it. You just tell me, Fred, like Mike, Michael Bay uh, will say, Fred, this is the beginning of my movie. Don't fuck it up. And then he walks away. He doesn't tell me anything. Okay? If you have a drone, you have to tell the guy, you have to go from this home, you have to go to this car. You, have to, you know what I mean? He has to be very precise because he has to see where he's going to go from A to B. When with us, we don't, you know. And, and I don't want to diminish, you know, drones. It's just drones is a complex technology. It's very hard for those guys to operate remotely uh, flying platform. It's well, like complex. you said, well, yeah, because you said that's like, that's just 2D technology versus what you're doing is 3D technology. But because you bring up Michael Bay... Out of all of the film directors you have worked with, who are some of your favorites? I mean, Michael, for sure, is one of my favorites. Um, just because, separate to his character, because he's an amazing guy, you know, he's, he's Michael Bay. You know, he's like, he became himself, you know, in a sense. But he's also, the vision he has for the shot is amazing. He's one of the rare directors that when he, he, he never flies, by the way, he's always on the ground. When he sees me flying with a camera, and he see the way I'm, I'm flying, he's taking the radio, he knows when I got the shot. Because usually we transmit our, our video image live to the director. With Michael, we do, but he never watched the screen. He's always watching us. He knows. Like, he can see what the camera does. His vision for a shot is insane. That's why he's shooting most of the, all the action stuff. Michael is, is uh, shooting himself, you know. But also, there's other director that I love. Uh, Sam Hargrave, you know, uh, for extraction, is uh, is very technical. He's coming from the stunt coordinator world and is excellent into details. Uh, Mark Molloy is the director. I just did Beverly Hills Cops Four with them. There's an insane helicopter sequence, one of the most dangerous and complex helicopter sequence I ever done in my life. It's in that movie. It's coming out July fourth with Eddie Murphy. It's a good movie. It's funny and some crazy shit in there. Well, I can't. I can't wait to see that one. That's cr like crazy shit. Okay, so it was hard. Um, so Mark Mark Molo is so into details. We we uh, we draw all the sequence pieces by pieces. Every turn, it was insane, and there were so many moving parts. Um, and not to say anything, because I can't say anything. But basically, I'm flying a helicopter between cars in traffic. So anyway, you'll see, but it's crazy, crazy shit. And I'm, I'm waiting for the trailer to come out because I'm pretty damn sure they're going to put that piece. But um, also, you have Louis Leterrier, French director, but he did Fast and Furious. He's so no ego, super, like he, he, he knows exactly what he wants. You know, everybody, those directors, they have one thing in common, though. Um, it's very hard for them to tell you what they want. And in, no, they have so much, like this head has the whole movie and the movie doesn't exist. So, you know, they we have to support them big time. Well, so he's not me, using a storyboard? They do, but some, <laughs> but he has, they do, but he has to tell the guy from the storyboard what to put on the storyboard. 
he still need to have the movie in his mind. The storyboard is only a little bit, but most of the time, you know, they're not um, like, I don't want to, for them to tell me how I should get the shot because they don't know helicopters. I just want them to tell me the story and I'm going to ask them how many seconds is going to be on the film. Is Are we talking of four seconds? Is it 15? Is there a dialogue in the car that I'm filming? Or is it just, to, I'm asking all those questions because I'm not going to be shooting in the same way if it's a 45 seconds with the credits, or is it just a four seconds or two seconds shot showing a car from the airport to the city? If it's two seconds, how can I show the car going? You know what I mean? So I have to, to ask those questions. If he's telling me how to do it, it's going to be the wrong way because he doesn't know what I can do for him. That's why I'm, I never ask them, tell me, you know, uh, how you want me to do it. Just tell me what you mean and what, how you're going to do the editing and let, it, let, let me do it. You know? Wow. Well, what, did, what did director Tony Scott mean to you? Oh, Tony Scott, he was amazing. Tony was so sensitive, so he was connecting with his crew. Like he was hugging me every day after the shots. He was thanking so much, you know, but with his heart. You know, it's it's such a tragedy because he was an amazing cine cinematographer. He was an amazing director. He loved helicopter. Like he was crazy, you know, in the movie, um, The Unstoppable with a Train. And I mean, it's crazy when he wanted me to... Uh, to shoot that train. And I'm not kidding. I was maybe five feet off the ground. And he said, Fred, Fred, at the radio, you know, I'm flying. He's on the ground. He said, Fred, what the hell are you doing so high? I said, Tony, I'm five feet off the dam. I said, Fred, lower, lower, you know. And and you have to understand that. He doesn't know that I'm five feet off the ground. Because some people say, do you say no to director? You have to understand that he's saying that because on camera, it looked wrong. He's only saying that because he, I, I look too high, because, but it depends where the camera was, you know. So we only have to change a little bit the, the camera mechanism to make sure that's going to look the way I was flying, five feet. I wasn't going to go lower than that, but you know what I mean. So people sometimes say, well, you know, director asks you stupid stuff. They do, but it's not because it's stupid. It's because the way they see it from their own eyes doesn't necessarily trans translate reality. So I never say no. To a director, I always offer an alternative, another option. And then when I learned that, I also now doing that in my life. Never say no, just offer another option. It's so much better. Ah, yeah. I love that. Well, you've got to tell us about landing on that moving train. Was it the most dangerous stunt you've ever done? It's for sure and on top of the list. Um, it's one of the most complicated ones, 100%. There's a few reasons for it. Um, when I told Sam Adgrave we could do it that way, because he didn't tell me to do that. He told me to, uh, in his mind, he wanted to have three helicopters, but one was going to be on top of the train at 60 miles an hour, but he wanted the people to repel it out he, at 60 miles an hour on top of the train. When he told me that, I figured we can do better than that. You know, I said, you know, that's going to be cool, but why we're not landing the, the damn helicopter on the train and the guy get out? He said, this is amazing. But the problem is when I hang up the phone, he's like, I don't know if I can do it. You know, like, I think I can, but it doesn't mean we can't. You know, the, the idea of doing something is a big difference than doing it. So anyway, I put myself into trouble like that a few times. I always did it, but... It was when I had the conversation and then when we did actually the show was eight months. So for eight months, you know, it goes through your mind and how I'm going to 
uh, trained for that. I can't train on it. Also, when I told him that, I said, well, we'll need 45 seconds clear of trees and wires to be to do the approach on the train, land on the train and take off from the train. But when I told him that, it was just in my mind, 45 seconds seems to be enough. We're supposed to do it in Australia. Because of COVID, we had to relocate the movie to Europe. And we did it in the Czech Republic. The problem in Czech Republic, I don't know if you've been there, is beautiful, but they have hills, trees, and wires. There's no empty field. So the problem is the track. Also, you need to find a track that has a diesel locomotive and not uh, electric, because it'll be wires. You can't land on the train in those wires. So they finally found that diesel uh, rail track and locomotive, but there was only 22 seconds of uh, free, uh, no trees. And I'm like, hey, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if I can do it in 22 seconds. So anyway, long story short, we did practice. Uh, we practiced on a decommissioned runway. We put a flatbed truck. We put the, the train container on the flatbed truck. And we practiced 20 miles an hour, 30, 40, 50, 60, all the way to 80 miles per hour. And at the end, we did 18 seconds at 60 miles an hour. That's That was the key. And this is how we did it on, on the train. But it was tricky because five guys, you know, 1,000 pounds of guys stepping out of the helicopter in three, four seconds. You know, the balance of the machine is crazy. There's only one skid on the train. The other one is off off to the side, so there's, it's hanging. Each time a guy get out, the machine wants to roll over. Anyway, plenty of problems. And, you know, 18 seconds when you know you only have 22 which means as soon as the first tree is clear, you have to start initiate the landing. But because when I'm putting the skid on the train, I can't see in front of me because I have to look on the train. So I don't know when the tree is coming. So I had a guy telling me, leave. You know, that's... Wow. I mean, the preparation that it took just for that is amazing. Yeah, it was, it was challenging. You know, but we did it in a very safe way. You know, we did it for the training. I think maybe I landed 80 times on that uh, train. For the shot, we did it twice. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, in his gripping, surprising, and wildly entertaining memoir, Fred North tells the incredible true story of how he became the most famous film stunt helicopter pilot in the world. His book, Flying Sideways, tells the thrilling but heartfelt story of how a misfit boy with nothing but a dream breaks the rules, beats the odds, and learns to bet on himself against a vibrant global backdrop that touches down everywhere from New York City to Mongolia to Madagascar. You follow Fred as he deserts the French army in roller skates, talks his way into flight school, becomes a chief pilot for the world's, world's greatest rally car race and adventure races and gets mixed up with the DEA in Miami. That is a funny story. Dodges death so many times and, and he falls in love. Flying Sideways is a nonstop thrill ride reminding us that the most dangerous thing we can do in life is giving up on it. Fred, I want to thank you so much for not only sharing us your incredible continued legacy, but also giving us great words of wisdom and inspiration to motivate us to chase after our own dreams uh, with us today. 
Fred, I want to thank you so much for sharing us your legacy, your continued legacy with us today. And I can't wait to see more aerial cinematography coming from you. Thank you so much. And uh, I want to say, you know, that all the podcasts I've been doing and everything, you were the only one that read the book and understood. No, but also the way you, you're saying it, you're putting, putting it because, you know, my English, it is what it is. But it was so well uh, done. You're a, a great professional. And I think your personality does match your skill. That's why you're really good at it. And uh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Uh well, I thank you for the for the kind words and compliments, Fred. It is it is my yeah. job to make my guest uh, feel at home, but to give them a chance, like you, to tell your incredible story. And your story is incredible to tell. Like I said, they need to make a movie about Fred North. <laughs> Let's see. In the meantime, if you know people can read the book, because the the, the book is is not you know. Uh, it's it's not the money thing, you know. It's 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 just an, an endeavor to share and and give people inspiration if I can and share my experience. Well, you definitely have done that. And again, ladies and gentlemen, you got to check out "Flying Sideways" by Fred North. His incredible legacy, his uh, continued legacy. He continues to fly, continues to give us the most amazing shots that we see in the movies. And like he said. You know, Beverly Hills Cop 4 is coming. Going to be one of the most craziest helicopter scenes you've ever seen. So I can't wait for that. And you can buy Flying Sideways, where all books are sold. Even go online to get this incredible book. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for watching and listening. You can catch all of the replays of our interviews with the top film directors, producers, screenwriters, actors, and stunt helicopter pilots on our YouTube channel, Bond on Cinema. We are also available on a dozen audio platforms as well. And remember, filmmaking is an art, and sometimes that art is painted by a helicopter. So I want to thank you for watching and listening. As for me, I'll see you at the movies.